thousands and thousands of people. He says, you can't say that. In fact, even some of his own disciples get up and walk away. They leave. Now, that's a wider group of disciples, not the 12 inner circle, but the wider group of people who are following him. They get up and they walk away and they leave. Listen to John 6, verse uh, 66. It says, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I can't follow you anymore. After what you're saying, after the claims that you're making, after the things, that, no, that, you've gone too far. I'm not having that, Jesus. I'm not having it. And then Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? This guys, do you want, are you for going? Are you sticking or are you twisting? Are you going? Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the word of eternal life. And so he said, look, God, uh, even if we decided we wanted to leave, even if we decided we weren't happy with what you said, where would we go? Who exactly could we follow after you? Who exactly could, could, could speak the way you've spoken? Could do the things that you've done? Who could we follow if we weren't following you? And I said, Jesus, I may not always understand what the crack is, but I trust you. I trust you. Children don't always understand what parents are up to. Why can't I eat my Cocoa Pops out of an Easter egg this morning? I don't understand. It's so unfair. Parents sometimes have to do things that is best. Children don't always understand. You can't stay up all night watching TV. You can't watch that film. It's inappropriate. Oh, it's not fair. Peter says, I don't always understand what's happening. But I trust you. I trust the Father. There's so many reasons why people walk away from God. All kinds of reasons. Some are good reasons and some are not really reasons at all. Maybe you've walked away because things weren't going the way you expected them to and you refuse to call him Father anymore. But here, even on the cross, when the weight of the world is literally on him, he still says, Father. I still trust you, still looking to you, still leaning on you. It says, Father, into your hands. The hands of man had done their worst. Wicked hands have beaten him. Wicked hands have nailed him to wood. Wicked hands have thrust a crown of thorns into his head. Wicked hands have forced sour and bitter wine into his mouth. And now he says, but Father, into your hands, I'm trusting my life. I'm committing my spirit. I'm putting my life in your hands. I willingly, I commit, I surrender my life. John, again, tells us that he bowed his head and then he died. That's important. Remember what Jesus said, John 10? saying about how he would lay down his life for the sheep. And then in verse 18, he says, no one can take it from me. No one can take my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. He voluntarily laid down his life. A dying man's head drops. But Christ bowed his head. 
He was in control the whole time, and he gave his life over to the Father. He laid it down, for he knew he would take it up again. Remember when he called himself the resurrection and the life? He called himself that before he died. Jesus Christ was able to rise from the dead because he is the resurrection and the life. He didn't get that title because he rose from the dead. I was going, oh, wow, he must be the resurrection. And I thought, this is who he is. This is always the part of the plan. He has the authority to lay it down, pick it up again. He is the resurrection and the life because the Father has powered him to do that. Look at the reaction of some of the people. The centurion was amazed and praised God. Now, here's a guy who's seen enough people die in his time. And yet he knew he had seen enough people die to die. He'd seen enough people die to know that something was different here. Something was different, and he praised God. Now remember, the Romans were only allowed to worship their gods, to worship Caesar. You worship another god, and you'll find yourself on a cross the next time. You'll find yourself in prison. You'll find yourself stripped of rank. But the centurion seeing it, he puts that all aside. I mean, these guys aren't religious guys, right? I mean, soldiers don't tend to be particularly religious people. Certainly not ones who are involved in executions. And yet here he sees him and he praised. Or we could maybe look at the reaction of the crowd. For me, it's very interesting. The ones who had been mocking him, the people who had been laughing at him, the people who had been throwing things at him, the people who had been spitting on him, they see the same things the centurion sees. And all they could do was go home and beat their breast. Now, in, in Israel, in the Middle East, beating their breast, it was a sign of great sorrow, of great anguish. Sometimes they would have ripped their clothes and they would have just pounded their chest. I don't know if you've ever felt that level of, of, of heartbreak and just you've heard some terrible news and you just... And there's almost this uncontrollable thing. It's a picture of so much remorse and sadness. And here's the thing. What the people saw impacted them, but fundamentally, it didn't change them. It didn't change them. They went home and, and they were sad, but that's all that happened. The next day, they weren't sad. The next day, they maybe talked about it, but didn't really change them. And I hope there's no one like, like that in this crowd this morning. I hope there's no one like that crowd in this crowd that, that they, yes, yes, I, I would love for you to be impacted by the power of the cross this morning. I'd love for you to see what's happening and to be deeply, profoundly impacted by what you see and what you understand, but I would not want you to just go home and then fundamentally just be unchanged. You get over it. You shake it off. You get on with it. We need to move on because... If all we had was a dead saviour, he wouldn't be much of a saviour at all. Something that the Bible actually says, 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless. Your faith is useless. And we apostles would be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection from the dead. And if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our faith is useless, and we're still guilty in our sins. We've still got a big problem, because we've still got to answer to God. And the people who died only hoping in Christ, they're lost. 
And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, some sort of pick-me-up, some sort of moral compass, some sort of thing that, you know, oh, well, I put a wee verse up on Facebook and it made me feel nice and fuzzy inside. If that's all we have, then we are to be more pitied than anyone in the entire world. It's an amazing thing. That's huge. Here, the Bible is saying, okay, everything about our faith, absolutely everything about our faith, we rise and we fall on this one truth because everything is going to fall apart if we don't have this one foundation. It's incredible, isn't it? If Christ has not been raised, forget about it. If you're going to say that your argument and reasons for believing in God all stem from the resurrection, you better be confident about that resurrection, right? Yet we're here to celebrate that this morning, aren't we? That Christ died and rose on the third day. Let's go into Luke 4, 24. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb. These ladies taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But they went in and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, if we're going to be intellectually honest this morning, and I think it's always important to be intellectual about these things, you have to do something with this period of time between the Friday and the Sunday. You have to account for it in some way. We know historically Jesus was a real person. We know that the Romans executed a man called Jesus. But from that point forward, you have to make up your mind. What are you going to do with Jesus? I don't know if you've ever been struck by how many unbelievers and how many unsaved scholars have put lots of time and effort into this. Because they are frustrated that they're trying to disprove Jesus and they are coming up with all these things because they know that they have to do something with this time frame. They have to come up with some way of explaining it away. Would you like to hear some of the theories? And again, my cards are on the table. I'm a Christian. They're I think these reasons are absolutely absurd. You might be sitting there thinking, well, I think someone coming back from the dead is absurd. Well, let's put them all beside each other and let's see just how absurd they all sound side by side. The first one, they, the ladies went to the wrong tomb. Now, you can make a joke about a woman's sense of direction there, but of course, that, we're, we're above that. The theory around this fairy tale of the resurrection is that the ladies were just so distraught that they went to the wrong tomb. There was an empty one there that was prepared for someone and they all freaked out. And then Peter and John ran and they were so excited, again, they ran to the wrong place. Look, I've gotten lost before. Ruth will tell you about me getting lost in Dublin and she will laugh at my frustration levels. This was before starting off. All right, we've all got lost before. And I know humanity. I'm not trying to deny experiences can be traumatic. I'm not denying the fact that people can get a wee bit turned around whenever they are mentally in a different place. But if they went to their own tomb and Christianity began to spread and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Romans who all wanted to shut it down, would it not be easier just to go, uh, guys, he's over here. <laughs> you went to the wrong place. He's been here the whole time. And they roll out the body. Jesus is dead. Christianity's done. Would that have been a whole lot easier? Instead of trying to set fire to people and destroy it, you know, not just say, hey guys, Christians are idiots. Morons, they just went to the wrong place. He's following these guys. He's listening to them. 
it is can even find a tomb in a graveyard. Doesn't sound quite right. It's been very easy to stop that in its tracks. Second reason is that the, the disciples were so filled with grief. Maybe they hallucinated his resurrection. Maybe, I mean, I've been around traumatic loss. Maybe they didn't sleep. Maybe they tried to take a few things to help them sleep. Found a few wee drugs, a few wee mushrooms, or a few wee drinks to ease the pain. I don't know. But maybe there was an hallucination. Problem with this is that Jesus appeared not just to one or two, a guy over there and a guy over here and someone over there and so on, but he appeared in front of hundreds of people at the same time. 1 Corinthians 15 again says, and this chapter is just brilliant for all this. It says, I've delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. So Jesus, uh, the, the, the Bible isn't saying, look, just take our word for it. Just believe. He's saying, listen, go talk to the people. Go talk to the people who saw him. Test it for yourselves. Love that about the Bible. It says, come on, poke around. We dare you. You're welcome to test it, examine it. Besides, we don't have an awful lot of evidence for group hallucinations. He sat down with the disciples. He ate with them for 40 days. He walked with them and then all of a sudden, hallucinations just stop. No one else gets one. Seems strange, doesn't it? It's not a basis for a religion that would endure long. The third theory is the one that's got the most traction down through the last couple of centuries, that he didn't really die. The most obvious one, well, maybe he just didn't die. Maybe he just kind of fainted, the swoon theory. And then just he kind of came to, maybe just the right atmosphere or whatever was going on in his body. He came to, pushed the the two-ton stone away himself, and then was able to convince everyone that even though there was nails and, and holes in his hands and his feet and the spear in his side and all his blood was drawn out, and that he had come back from the dead. That he was able then to somehow convince them that he was the conqueror of the grave. Now, if we're being honest, historically, it's happened before. We know that there have been people who have been mistakenly buried thought they were dead, but they weren't, and they've came to, and it's been horrific for them. It is possible. It has happened. So maybe we're onto something here. Let's explore it a wee bit more. Maybe Jesus swooned and didn't just come back to, didn't come back to life, but kind of just pulled himself together. He composed himself and then figured out a way to get out. Frederick Strauss, or David Frederick Strauss, not a Christian, secular. Here's what he has to say. Again, I just love honesty with people. I don't care if, if it puts weight or pressure under my spiritual beliefs. I, I believe all truth is God's truth. And so if someone, something is true, I praise God for it. I'm, I'm not worried about that. But here's what uh, Strauss says. He says, it is impossible that a being who had stolen half, who had stolen half dead out of the sepulcher who crept about weak and ill, needing medical treatment, also requiring bandaging and strengthening and indulgence, who still at last would yield to his sufferings, could have given to his disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death and the grave and the prince of life. 
as a non-believer, he says, it's just not physically possible that someone could recover from those injuries in three days and convince anyone that he's fine. And besides, even if he did come to you, he'd still die at some point. He'd still die eventually. And so the argument is, it just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. These disciples would have to have bandaged his wounds. They would have had to nurse him and care for him. And he still would have died because of his wounds. Even honest, non-believing historians say that it can't be this. And that leaves us really with the last one. And this one again was popular for a long time. The disciples stole the body. That his disciples stole the body from Jesus and they made up the resurrection so that they could further the teaching and that they could make it go a wee bit further. Again, maybe we've seen some crazy stuff in some religions and some cults down through the years. It's not the craziest theory. Well, number one, the Bible tells us that the disciples are idiots. All right, you get that time and time again. Just very honestly, outs them as morons. They're just very, very dumb people. In fact, when you sometimes, you know, when you read it through, it says, oh, somebody tampered with the Bible? I think no, because the stuff that's in there kind of proves that it wouldn't be tampered with. All right, it just shows it. I mean, it, I hope you pay attention to when you read the Bible and look at it through human eyes and read it and see how these people are feeling whenever they talk to Jesus. Jesus is telling a parable and they're all going, oh, yeah, 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 get it. And then people ask Jesus, well, what did it all mean? And they're like, I actually, yeah, what, what, what did that mean? And Jesus has to say, what, seriously? Well, these are given for you that you may understand. Let me explain it to you again. And they don't get it. And that's in the Bible more than once. They don't get the teaching. They don't always understand what's happening. They're not following the train of thought. And then I, bring, I, I often bring up the fact that Jesus called Peter Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Oh, yeah, you're top of the class. But no, get behind me, Satan. You know, and he's teaching about humility and loneliness. And they're going, aye, aye, that's great. But listen, do I get to sit beside you in heaven? Can I sit beside you in heaven? Can I be the top guy? Can I be? Who's winning between the disciples, Jesus? So I was like, that doesn't sound like the CV of a guy who would be masterminding a brand new religion. It doesn't sound like, you know, if they're going to tamper with the evidence and change the narrative, if you're going to create a hoax, wouldn't you take out some of that embarrassing stuff? When you put a wee bit of spit and polish on it, make yourself look a wee bit better, a wee bit more believable, a wee bit more trustworthy. Yet what we see in the middle of this is the idea that these cowardly, unsure fishermen with no education somehow overnight became SEAL Team 6 and took out Roman guards, but didn't kill them, and were able to then steal a body and then were willing to be tortured and killed to keep the lie alive doesn't seem like a very, lo- I mean, I know these guys are idiots, but it doesn't sound like a very logical plan. What's their end game here? What's the goal here? Think about it. Nobody breaks. They, they crucify Peter upside down, and he doesn't change his story. Every one of the disciples dies a brutal death. John, who wrote the book of Revelation, was boiled in oil alive, and it didn't kill him, and so they exile him to Patmos. And nowhere along that does he say, I don't think this lie is worth this. He sticks to his guns. He sticks to the story. Bearing in mind that this story didn't make them rich. It makes them poor. It leads them to poverty. It leads them to prison. It leads them to death. 
That's the goal here. That's the end game here. And yet none of them changed their story. Would you do all that for something that you knew was fake? Keep in mind, Peter has a wife. They all have families. Nobody recants. Nobody calls it off. Nobody changes the story. And yet the theory is, oh, they stole the body. Makes no sense. Oh, well, maybe it was the Romans who stole the body. No, well, look, again, they, they didn't like Christianity. Remember, they're burning the Christians. They put them and feed them in lions and set them on fire. If they wanted to end Christianity, they'd just say, well, look, we just thought they were going to mess around the body. We hid it. Here it is. Jesus' death. Be very easy to stop if it was a hoax. And yet Christianity flourished. Let's go on with Luke. Because those theories are just so fragile. You put any weight on them, they just crumble. Luke goes on. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And they were as frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Again, Jesus didn't want us to be surprised. He was telling them all the time what was happening. And they remembered his words. And returning to the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale to women. Huh? Their stories. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stopping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. What I love, what I love about this story is that the women who were the last to leave the cross are the women who are the first to the tomb. What I love is how women play such a key role in this story breaking, at the very epicenter of the good news. It was the women in Jesus' life who were there. Jesus entrusted them with the news. The women who were there at the cross, who were there at the tomb, they were the ones he trusted. Women who at this time in history, in Roman and Jewish society, they weren't allowed to testify in court because their words couldn't be trusted. They didn't have the right to vote. They didn't have the right to participate in, in culture in that level. They weren't trusted, but Jesus trusted them. Jesus trusted them with this message. Why? Because the veil's torn. Anyone can come. All can come and carry this message, but put away the stereotypes about your faith. Put away the kind of sexism that you think is there and the prejudices. And that this is all about a resurrected Savior and all can come. doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what role you play. You can come. I love how none of the people on that day were expecting the resurrection. The women were there to anoint a, a dead body. People who are crucified don't get the ceremonial treatment that the Jews needed. They couldn't go on the Saturday because it was the Sabbath, so they go on the Sunday at 5 a.m. to try and do him the honors of a decent burial. They were expecting a, cor a corpse. Whenever they go to the apostles, they're not believing it because they're expecting them to still be dead. And yet these men, 
these cowardly idiots who didn't expect the crucifixion, who weren't ready for what Jesus was doing. They went on from Pentecost to preach the message with a power and a passion and laid their life down for this message and endured all the hardship for the sake of this message. And whenever they were told, stop or we will kill you, stop and we will beat you to death, they said, look, you've got to do what you've got to do. But as for us, we cannot stop preaching this message. What a change. Remember that quote from earlier on, C.S. Lewis? Christianity of false is of no importance, if true of infinite importance. What it cannot be is moderately important. For these men, it was of supreme importance. My life, it doesn't matter. This message matters. My income doesn't matter. This message is what matters. It doesn't matter what else is going on. It's the message of a resurrected Savior that matters. And they laid it all down for him. You know, there's a story... Jesus had half-brothers, and one of his brothers was James, who went on to be a leader in the church. And uh, they took him to the top of the temple, and they dangled him over the edge. And they says, you stop talking about this resurrected man from Nazareth, or we'll throw you over the edge. And he says, I cannot stop. I cannot deny the truth. And they throw him off the edge of the temple. He falls and falls and falls and he hits the ground and he shatters his legs and there's a mob gathers around him and he starts praying for them and he starts rejoicing knowing that he's going to see Christ again soon and someone outraged takes a blunt object and smashes his head at night. I have siblings. I can't convince them of anything. You know, let alone that I would be the son of God. They know me too well. I don't know anyone who could convince their siblings, oh, I'm a really good person. I'm a brilliant person. Go, mm, are you? Because <laughs> they know all the stories. They know what you're like. And yet, Jesus' own brother, who saw him grow up, laid down his life for Jesus, for this message. So my question, what are you going to do with Jesus? Easter is a simple question. What does it mean to you? If Christ has indeed risen from the dead, and yes, I'm coming from the position that yes, I believe this, and this is where I'm coming from. But if he is alive, if Jesus has risen from the dead, then what that resurrection means is death has been defeated. Forgiveness of sins is possible. What are you going to do with that? The veil is torn. You can come to God and have sins forgiven because of Christ. You know, we're the most entertained generation in the entire world. The world's ever seen six, seven hundred channels on TV. Still nothing on. All the information in the world in your pocket right now because of your phones. Instant access to the internet. All the information that you could ever want in our pockets. Yet we're still restless. The great irony of life in this modern world is I'm going to live my life my way. And yet we've never been more depressed. We've never been more suicidal. We've never been more dependent on antidepressants and painkillers and therapy. Do you want to live? Then you need the life that Christ can give. An eternal life. John 10 says, I have, Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and life to the fullest. 
So you need to stop making life about you and make it about him. The more you make the world about you, the more miserable and exhausted and angry you will be. Because if life's about me, I'm going to put that on my wife. Saying, listen, love, I know you've been busy, but your job's to make me happy. I'm going to put that on my children. Girls, listen, I know you've got your names, but really, you're here to fulfill my dreams. You're here to make me happy. I want to live out my life through you as well. It's going to make me miserable in work. I'm saying, okay, guys, look, listen, I hope you all realize that this is about me. I hope you recognize me. I hope you appreciate me. I hope you talk about me. But what God says at the cross is one of the most freeing things that you will ever hear. It's not about you. It's not about you. This world isn't about your story. But this is my story. It's all God's story, one story. And we all have a part to play in his story. And unless you repent, unless you believe, your part in that story is to display God's justice, his right justice, his good justice. But if we repent and believe, our part in that story is to be the picture of God's grace and his mercy and wonderful, beautiful love not a picture of his justice. This is what we celebrate on Easter, that Jesus died to pay the debt and was raised from the grave, defeating death, purchasing our souls, adopting us as sons and daughters, forgiving us completely, but only to those who believe in faith and embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we will leave here rejoicing.